Chapter Eleven of Industrial Biography Iron Workers and Toolmakers by Samuel Smiles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Clive Catterall. Joseph Brahmer. The great inventor is one who has walked forth upon the industrial world not from universities but from hovels, not as clad in silks and decked with honours, but as clad in fustian and grimed with soot and oil. Isaac Taylor, Ultimate Civilization. The inventive faculty is so strong in some men that it may be said to amount to a passion and cannot be restrained. The saying that the poet is born, not made, applies with equal force to the inventor, who, though indebted like the other to culture and improved opportunities, nevertheless invents and goes on inventing mainly to gratify his own instinct. The inventor, however, is not a creator like the poet, but chiefly a finder-out. His power consists in a great measure in quick perception and accurate observation, and in seeing and foreseeing the effects of certain mechanical combinations. He must possess the gift of insight, as well as of manual dexterity, combined with the indispensable qualities of patience and perseverance. For though baffled as he often is, he must be ready to rise up again unconquered, even in the moment of defeat. This is the stuff of which the greatest inventors have been made. The subject of the following memoir may not be entitled to rank as a first-class inventor, though he was a most prolific one, but as the founder of a school from which proceeded some of the most distinguished mechanics of our time, he is entitled to a prominent place in this series of memoirs. Joseph Brahmer was born in 1748 at the village of Stainborough, near Barnsley, in Yorkshire, where his father rented a small farm under Lord Strafford. Joseph was the eldest of five children, and was early destined to follow the plough. After receiving a small amount of education at the village school, he was set to work upon the farm. From an early period he showed signs of constructive skill, when a mere boy he occupied his leisure hours in making musical instruments, and he succeeded in executing some creditable pieces of work with very imperfect tools. A violin, which was made out of a solid block of wood, was long preserved as a curiosity. He was so fortunate as to make a friend of the village blacksmith, whose smithy he was in the practice of frequenting. The smith was an ingenious workman, and having taken a liking for the boy, he made sundry tools for him out of old files and razor-blades, and with these his fiddle and other pieces of work were mainly executed. Joseph might have remained a ploughman for life, but for an accident which happened to his right ankle at the age of sixteen, which unfitted him for farm-work. While confined at home disabled, he spent his time in carving and making things in wood, and then it occurred to him that, though he could not be a ploughman, he might be a mechanic. When sufficiently recovered, he was, accordingly, put apprentice to one Allet, the village carpenter, under whom he soon became an expert workman. He could make ploughs, window-frames, or fiddles with equal dexterity. He also made violin-cellos, and was so fortunate as to sell one of his own making for three guineas, which is still reckoned a good instrument. He doubtless felt within him the promptings of ambition, such as every good workman feels, and at all events entertained the desire of rising in his trade. 
When his time was out, he accordingly resolved to seek work in London, whither he made the journey on foot. He soon found work at a cabinet-maker's, and remained with him for some time, after which he set up in business, in a very small way, on his own account. An accident which happened to him in the course of his daily work again proved his helper, by affording him a degree of leisure which he at once proceeded to turn to some useful account. Part of his business consisted in putting up water-closets, after a method invented or improved by Mr. Allen. But the article was still very imperfect, and Brahma had long resolved that if he could only secure some leisure for the purpose, he would contrive something that should supersede it altogether. A severe fall which occurred to him in the course of his business, and laid him up, though very much against his will, now afforded him the leisure which he desired, and he proceeded to make his proposed invention. He took out a patent for it in 1778, describing himself in the specification as of Cross Court, Carnaby Market, Golden Square, Middlesex, Cabinet Maker. He afterwards removed to a shop in Denmark Street, St. Giles, and while there he made a further improvement to his invention by the addition of a watercock, which he patented in 1783. The merits of the machine were generally recognised, and before long it came into extensive use, continuing to be employed with but few alterations until the present day. His circumstances improving with the increased use of his invention, Brahma proceeded to undertake the manufacture of the pumps, pipes, etc., required for its construction, and remembering his friend the Yorkshire blacksmith, who had made his first tools for him out of old files and razor-blades, he sent for him to London to take charge of the blacksmith's department, in which he proved a most useful assistant. As usual, the patent was attacked by pirates as soon as it became productive, and Brahma was under the necessity, on more than one occasion, of defending his property in the invention, in which he was completely successful. We next find Brahma turning his attention to the invention of a lock that should surpass all others then known. The locks then in use were of a very imperfect character, easily picked by dexterous thieves, against whom they afforded little protection. Yet locks are a very ancient invention though, as in many other cases, the art of making them seems in a great measure to have become lost, and accordingly had to be found out anew. Thus the tumbler lock, which consists in the use of movable impediments acted on by the proper key only, as contradistinguished from the ordinary ward locks, where the impediments are fixed, appears to have been well known to the ancient Egyptians, the representation of such a lock being found sculpted among the bas-reliefs which decorate the great temple at Karnak. This kind of lock was revived, or at least greatly improved, by a Mr. Barron in 1774, and it was shortly after this time that Brahma directed his attention to the subject. After much study and many experiments, he contrived a lock more simple, more serviceable, as well as more secure than Barron's as is proved by the fact that it has stood the test of nearly eighty years' experience, and still holds its ground. For a long time, indeed, Brahma's lock was regarded as absolutely inviolable, and it remained unpicked for sixty-seven years, until Hobbes the American mastered it in 1851. A notice had long been exhibited in Brahma's shop window in Piccadilly, offering two hundred pounds to anyone who could succeed in picking the patent lock. Many tried, and all failed, until Hobbes succeeded, after sixteen days' manipulation of it, 
with various elaborate instruments. But the difficulty with which the lock was picked showed that, for all ordinary purposes, it might be pronounced impregnable. The new locks were machines of the most delicate kind, the action of which depended in a great measure upon the precision with which the springs, sliders, levers, barrels, and other parts were finished. The merits of the invention being generally admitted, there was a considerable demand for the locks, and the necessity thus arose for inventing a series of original machine tools to enable them to be manufactured in sufficient quantities to meet the demand. It is probable, indeed, that but for the contrivance of such tools, the lock could never have come into general use, as the skill of hand workmen, no matter how experienced, could not have been relied upon for the turning out of the article with that degree of accuracy finish in all the parts which was indispensable for its proper action. In conducting the manufacture throughout, Brahma was greatly assisted by Henry Maudsley, his foreman to whom he was in no small degree indebted for the contrivance of those machine-tools which enabled him to carry on the business of lock-making with advantage and profit. Brahma's indefatigable spirit of invention was only stimulated to fresh efforts by the success of his locks, and in the course of a few years we find him entering upon a more important and original line of action than he had yet ventured on. His patent of 1785 shows the direction of his studies. Watt had invented his steam-engine, which was coming into general use, and the creation of motive power in various other forms became a favourite subject of inquiry with inventors. Brahma's first invention with this object was his hydrostatic machine, founded on the doctrine of the equilibrium of pressure in fluids, as exhibited in the well-known hydrostatic paradox. In his patent of 1785, in which he no longer describes himself as cabinet-maker, but engine-maker of Piccadilly, he indicated many inventions, though none of them came into practical use, such as a hydrostatical machine and boiler, and the application of the power produced by them to the drawing of carriages, and the propelling of ships by a paddle-wheel fixed in the stern of the vessel, of which drawings are annexed in the specification. But it was not until 1795 that he patented his hydrostatic or hydraulic press. Though the principle on which the hydraulic press is founded had long been known, and formed the subject of much curious speculation, it remained unproductive of results until a comparatively recent period, when the idea occurred of applying it to mechanical purposes. A machine of the kind was indeed proposed by Pascal, the eminent philosopher, in 1664, but more than a century elapsed before the difficulties in the way of its construction were satisfactorily overcome. Brahma's machine consists of a large and massive cylinder, in which there works an accurately fitted solid piston or plunger. A forcing pump of very small bore communicates with the bottom of the cylinder, and by the action of the pump handle or lever, exceedingly small quantities of water are forced in succession beneath the piston in the large cylinder, thus gradually raising it up, and compressing bodies whose bulk or volume it is intended to reduce. Hence it is most commonly used as a packing-press, being superior to every other contrivance of the kind that has yet been invented. Though exercising a prodigious force, it is so easily managed that a boy can work it. The machine has been employed on many extraordinary occasions in preference to other methods of applying power. Thus Robert Stevenson used it to hoist the gigantic tubes of the Britannia Bridge into their bed, 
and Brunel to launch the Great Eastern steamship from her cradles. It has also been used to cut bars of iron, to draw the piles driven in forming coffer dams, and to wrench up trees by the roots, all of which feats it accomplishes with comparative ease. The principal difficulty experienced in constructing the hydraulic press before the time of Brahma arose from the tremendous pressure exercised by the pump, which forced the water through between the solid piston and the sides of the cylinder in which it worked in such quantities as to render the press useless for practical purposes. Brahma himself was at first completely baffled by this difficulty. It will be observed that the problem was to secure a joint sufficiently free to let the piston slide up through it, and at the same time so watertight as to withstand the internal force of the pump. These two conditions seemed so conflicting that Brahma was almost at his wit's end, and for a time despaired of being able to bring the machine to a state of practical efficiency. None but those who have occupied themselves in the laborious, and often profitless, task of helping the world to new and useful machines, can have any idea of the tantalising anxiety which arises from the apparently petty stumbling-blocks, which for a while impede the realisation of a great idea in mechanical invention. Such was the case with the watertight arrangement in the hydraulic press. In his early experiments, Brahma tried the expedient of the ordinary stuffing-box for the purpose of securing the required water-tightness. That is, a coil of hemp or leather washers was placed in a recess so as to fit tightly round the moving ram or piston, and it was further held in its place by means of a compressing collar forced hard down by strong screws. The defect of this arrangement was that, even supposing the packing could be made sufficiently tight to resist the passage of the water urged by the tremendous pressure from beneath, such was the grip which the compressed material took of the ram of the press that it could not be got to return down after the water pressure had been removed. In this dilemma, Brahma's ever-ready workman, Henry Maudsley, came to his rescue. The happy idea occurred to him of employing the pressure of the water itself to give the requisite water-tightness to the collar. It was a flash of common-sense genius, beautiful through its very simplicity. The result was Maudsley's self-tightening collar, the action of which a few words of description will render easily intelligible. A collar of sound leather, the convex side upwards and the concave side downwards, was fitted into the recess turned out in the neck of the press cylinder, the place formerly used as a stuffing-box. Immediately on the high-pressure water being turned on, it forced its way into the leathern concavity, and flapped out the bent edges of the collar, and in so doing caused the leather to apply itself to the surface of the rising ram, with a degree of closeness and tightness so as to seal up the joint the closer exactly in proportion to the pressure of the water in its tendency to escape. On the other hand, the moment the pressure was let off, and the ram desired to return, the collar collapsed, and the ram slid gently down, perfectly free, and yet perfectly watertight. Thus the former tendency of the water to escape by the side of the piston was, by this most simple and elegant self-adjusting contrivance, made instrumental to the perfectly efficient action of the machine, and from the moment of its invention the hydraulic press took its place as one of the grandest agents for exercising power in a concentrated and tranquil form. Brahma continued his useful labours as an inventor for many years. His study of the principles of hydraulics in the course of his invention of the press 
enabled him to introduce many valuable improvements in pumping machinery. By varying the form of the piston and cylinder, he was enabled to obtain a rotary motion, which he advantageously applied to many purposes. Thus he adopted it in the well-known fire-engine, the use of which has become almost universal. Another popular machine of his is the beer-pump, patented in 1797, by which the publican is enabled to raise from the casks in the cellar beneath the various liquors sold by him over the counter. He also took out several patents for the improvement of the steam-engine, in which, however, Watt left little room for other inventors. And hence Brahma seems to have entertained a grudge against Watt, which broke out fiercely in the evidence given by him in the case of Bolton and Watt versus Hornblower and Mabberley, tried in December 1796. On that occasion his temper seems to have got the better of his judgment, and he was cut short by the judge in the attempt which he then made to submit the contents of the pamphlet, subsequently published by him in the form of a letter to the judge before whom the case was tried. In that pamphlet he argued that Watt's specification had no definite meaning, that it was inconsistent and absurd, and could not possibly be understood, that the proposal to work steam-engines on the principle of condensation was entirely fallacious, that Watt's method of packing the piston was monstrous stupidity, that the engines of Newcomen, since entirely superseded, were infinitely superior in all respects to those of Watt, conclusions which, we need scarcely say, have been refuted by the experience of nearly a century. On the expiry of Bolton and Watt's patent, Brahma introduced several valuable improvements in the details of the condensing engine, which had by that time become an established power, the most important of which was his four-way cock, which he so arranged as to revolve continuously instead of alternately, thus ensuring greater precision with considerably less wear of parts. In the same patent by which he secured this invention in 1801, he also proposed sundry improvements in the boilers, as well as modifications in various parts of the engine, with the object of effecting greater simplicity and directness of action. In his patent of 1802, we find Brahma making another great stride in mechanical invention in his tools for producing straight, smooth and parallel surfaces on wood and other materials requiring truth, in a manner much more expeditious and perfect than can be performed by the use of axes, saws, planes, and other cutting instruments used by hand in the ordinary way. The specification describes the object of the invention to be the saving of manual labour, the reduction in the cost of production, and the superior character of the work executed. The tools were fixed on frames driven by machinery, some moving in a rotary direction round an upright shaft, some with a shaft horizontal like an ordinary wood-turning lathe, while in others the tools were fixed on frames sliding in stationary grooves. A wood-planing machine was constructed on the principle of this invention at Woolwich Arsenal, where it still continues in efficient use. The axis of the principal shaft was supported on a piston in a vessel of oil, which considerably diminished the friction, and it was so contrived as to be accurately regulated by means of a small forcing pump. Although the machinery described in the patent was first applied to working on wood, it was equally applicable to working on metals and in his own shops at Pimlico, Brahma employed a machine with revolving cutters to plane the metallic surfaces for his patent locks and other articles. He also introduced a method of turning spherical surfaces, either convex or concave, by a tool movable on an axis perpendicular to that of the lathe, 
and of cutting out concentric shells by fixing in a similar manner a curved tool of nearly the same form as that employed by common turners for making bowls. In fact, says Mr. Mallet, Brahma not only anticipated but carried out upon a tolerably large scale in his own works, for the construction of the patent hydraulic press, the water-closet and his locks, a surprisingly large proportion of our modern tools. His remarkable predilection in favour of the use of hydraulic arrangements is displayed in his specification on the surface planing machinery, which includes a method of running pivots entirely on a fluid, and raising and depressing them at pleasure by means of a small forcing-pump and stopcock, though we are not aware that any practical use has ever been made of this part of the invention. Brahma's inventive genius displayed itself alike in small things as in great, in a tap wherewith to draw a glass of beer, and in a hydraulic machine capable of tearing up a tree by the roots. His powers of contrivance seemed inexhaustible, and were exercised on the most various subjects. When any difficulty occurred which mechanical ingenuity was calculated to remove, recourse was usually had to Brahma, and he was rarely found at a loss for a contrivance to overcome it. Thus, when applied to by the Bank of England in 1806, to construct a machine for more accurately and expeditiously printing the numbers and date-lines on banknotes, he at once proceeded to invent the requisite model, which he completed in the course of a month. He subsequently brought it to great perfection, the figures in numerical succession being changed by the action of the machine itself, and it still continues in regular use. Its employment in the Bank of England alone saved the labour of a hundred clerks, but its chief value consisted in its greater accuracy, the perfect legibility of the figures printed by it, and the greatly improved check which it afforded. We next find him occupying himself with inventions connected with the manufacture of pens and paper. His little pen-making machine for readily making quill-pens long continued in use until driven out by the invention of the steel pen, but his patent for making paper by machinery, though ingenious like everything he did, does not seem to have been adopted, the inventions of Fordrinier and Donkin in this direction having shortly superseded all others. Among his other minor inventions may be mentioned his improved method of constructing and sledging carriage-wheels, and his improved method of laying water-pipes. In his specification of the last-mentioned invention, he included the application of water-power to the driving machinery of every description, and for hoisting and lowering goods in docks and warehouses since carried out in practice, though in a different manner, by Sir William Armstrong. In this, as in many other matters, Brahma shot ahead of the mechanical necessities of his time, and hence many of his patents, of which he held at one time more than twenty, proved altogether profitless. His last patent, taken out in 1814, was for the application of Roman cement to timber for the purpose of preventing dry-rot. Besides his various mechanical pursuits, Brahma also followed to a certain extent the profession of a civil engineer, though his more urgent engagements rendered it necessary for him to refuse many advantageous offers of employment in this line. He was, however, led to carry out the new waterworks at Norwich between the years 1790 and 1793, in consequence of his having been called upon to give evidence in a dispute between the corporation of that city and the lessees in the course of which he propounded plans which, it was alleged, 
could not be carried out. To prove that they could be carried out, and that his evidence was correct, he undertook the new works, and executed them with complete success. Besides demonstrating, in a spirited publication elicited by the controversy, the insufficiency and incongruity of the plans which had been submitted by the rival engineer. For some time prior to his death, Brahma had been employed in the erection of several large machines in his works at Pimlico for sawing stone and timber, to which he applied his hydraulic power with great success. New methods of building bridges and canal locks, with a variety of other matters, were in an embryo state in his mind, but he did not live to complete them. He was occupied in superintending the action of his hydrostatic press at Holt Forest in Hants, where upwards of three hundred trees of the largest dimensions were in a very short time torn up by the roots, when he caught a severe cold which settled upon his lungs, and his life was suddenly brought to a close on the ninth of December, 1814, in his sixty-sixth year. His friend, Dr. Cullen Brown, has said of him that Brahma was a man of excellent moral character temperate in his habits, and of a pious turn of mind, and so cheerful in temperament that he was the life of every company into which he entered. To much facility of expression he added the most perfect independence of opinion. He was a benevolent and affectionate man, neat and methodical in his habits, and knew well how to temper liberality with economy. Greatly to his honour he often kept his workmen employed solely for their sake, when stagnation of trade prevented him disposing of the products of their labour. As a manufacturer, he was distinguished for his promptitude and probity, and he was celebrated for the exquisite finish which he gave to all his productions. In this excellence of workmanship, which he was the first to introduce, he continued while he lived to be unrivalled. Brahma was deservedly honoured and admired as the first mechanical genius of his time, and as the founder of the art of tool-making in its highest branches. From his shops at Pimlico came Henry Maudsley, Joseph Clement, and many more first-class mechanics, who carried the mechanical arts to still higher perfection, and gave an impulse to mechanical engineering the effects of which are still felt in every branch of industry. The parish to which Brahma belonged was naturally proud of the distinction he had achieved in the world and commemorated his life and career by a marble tablet erected by subscription in his memory in the parish church of Silkstone. In the churchyard are found the tombstones of Joseph's father, brother, and other members of the family, and we are informed that the descendants still occupy the farm at Stainborough, on which the great mechanician was born. End of chapter 11